And so this is where you've gone from looking at a chromosome under a microscope to actually, you know, doing a digital karyotype, if you will, of every single base pair in the genome. And you said the arrays were early 2000, so it wasn't really that long ago that this transformation is right. So I think maybe the was it that long ago or wasn't it that long ago, right? <laughs> if you're a patient, then it was a long time ago. If you're a researcher, then no, it wasn't that long ago. Welcome to the Illumina Genomics Podcast where leading scientists discuss their genomics research and how genomics is shaping their understanding of science and nature. Here's your host, Paul Broman. Hi, thanks for joining me today and welcome to episode 62. Each one of our genomes contains millions of DNA sequence variations or variants. And some of these variants are very small and involve changes in single nucleotides. But some DNA variants are much larger. Structural variants involve changes in DNA segments across several bases, and they can play a significant role in human disease. In the 20th century, scientists could detect large structural variants by looking at chromosomes under a microscope. Using a process called karyotyping, large chromosomal structural abnormalities, or aneuploidies, could be characterized at fairly low resolution. But the advent of molecular techniques, including next-generation sequencing, or NGS, have allowed scientists to understand structural variation at increasing levels of resolution. To talk about these issues, I'm very pleased to welcome Dr. Michael Talkowski to the show. Mike is Associate Professor of Neurology, Psychiatry, and Pathology at Massachusetts General Hospital and Harvard Medical School. Listen to Mike explain how DNA structural variations are involved in human developmental and psychiatric disorders, and how NGS can be used to study them. Dr. Michael Talkowski, welcome to the Genomics Podcast. And in today's show, we're going to talk about genetic sequencing, about NGS, and and, uh, looking at genetic perturbations, especially as they pertain to human disease. But before we get into that discussion, I was wondering if you can start off by briefly introducing yourself. Sure. Well, thank you so much for having me. I am an associate professor here at Massachusetts General Hospital and at um, Harvard Medical School. I'm also an institute member at the Broad Institute, where we belong, my lab actually belongs to the program Medical and Population Genetics, as well as the Stanley Center for Psychiatric Research at the Broad Institute. And here at Mass General, we are in the Center for Genomic Medicine. So structural variants, which I'm hoping you can find for us, they're important to human disorders, including, you know, autism spectrum disorder that I know you've published on quite a bit, as well as congenital abnormalities. So what kinds of genetic perturbations are we talking about when we talk about structural variants, and how do you identify these using genomics data? Generally, the operational definition of a structural variant is a reorganization of the linear structure of the genome that alters more than 50 base pairs. This is not sort of a hard and fast definition based necessarily on biological definition, but rather just operationally how they have been defined. And and things smaller than that have generally been referred to as insertions, deletions, or indels. The impact of structural variation is certainly profound. There have been studies for quite some time showing that you see larger structural variants in individuals with disease than you do in controls. And and this has sort of been shown across many, many disorders over a long period of time. Maybe the best way to describe the impact of the technology of 
massively parallel sequencing technology on structural variation is to understand the the history of detection of structural variation, where for a very long time, it was microscopy and karyotyping, where you had to look under a microscope to see a change in the chromosome. Physically looking at chromosomes. Physically looking at chromosomes and, and, and counting the number of chromosomes, right? And of course, the, the most obvious change is an aneuploidy or a gain or a loss of a chromosome. Well, you can imagine the better and better you get at, at understanding how a chromosome is supposed to look, the smaller and smaller you can pick up a change in that chromosome. But there's, there's limits on that resolution, and, and, and about 5 million base pairs is about all the change you can see under a microscope, you know, depending on... on it's actually pretty techniques. good. It's not bad, right? <laughs> yeah, if, you're, yeah. <laughs> if you're one of these people that, uh, you know, the, the cytogeneticists are amazing <laughs> at, at sort of looking at these chromosomes and understanding these changes that, you know, when you first learned this, you're looking at, like, well, what are they seeing? But then it moved on to, you know, there was a period where you could hybridize probes to the genome and, and have a look at if these probes changed in different ways. And then I think really the the big shift occurred um, sort of in the early 2000s with work that was done by a number of different individuals in a technology, chromosomal microarray, where the idea was that you could actually tile the genome with probes that you knew where those probes went and you knew what their sequence was. And as they hybridized, they, they emitted light and you could, you could sort of measure that emission and, and try to figure out the number of relative copies of the chromosome that you have there. And at first, you know, you didn't have a lot of probes across the genome, but you had enough that you could pick up very big things. And then more and more over time, this, this idea of microarrays to detect copy number variation uh, became, you know, widespread. And, and there you're able to see just large gains and losses of the chromosomes that made its way down to megabase resolution and then eventually kind of 500 kilobases. And, you know, there were a couple of seminal studies in the early 2000s from Mike Wiggler's lab and Steve Shear and Charles Lee. And then later on in the 2000s, there were studies to really say, you know, if I look at schizophrenia or I look at autism or neurodevelopmental disorders, these kids harbor very large copy number variants that you just never see in controls. And so that was fascinating. But what you were finding there was big changes in copy number between the chromosomes. But if the chromosome flipped or swapped or, you know, exchanged material in a balanced way, you could never see that because the probe is somewhere else in the chromosome, but you don't know that, right? Yeah. Or in, on another chromosome itself. And so those are kind of what we refer to balance rearrangements. And that was what the karyotype was actually capturing that the microarray wasn't. And, and there was a period of time where benchmarking had been done to compare karyotyping to microarray. And while microarray was detecting many more abnormalities and, and diagnosing more children, the, the difference wasn't massive. And the reason is because it was missing these balanced events. So this is a, a long-winded way of telling you that that's where the, the chain, the sequencing technology really has made a difference. Okay. Is from the sequencing, we can now look at the actual breakpoints. So if, if, if the chromosome breaks and recombines and you get a very small deletion, we can sequence across that breakpoint. Or if it's rearranged and it flips, then you can see that it, within a given read or sequence read, you, you have two different orientations of the sequence. And of course, now I see an inversion. Right. And so this is where you've gone from looking at a chromosome under a microscope to actually you know, doing a digital karyotype, if you will, of every single base pair in the genome and, and understanding every gene. And you said the arrays were early 2000s, so it wasn't really that long ago that this transformation is occurred. Right. So I think maybe the, was it that long ago or wasn't it that long ago, right? <laughs> if you're a patient, then it was a long time ago. If you're a researcher, then no, it wasn't that long ago, yeah. right? And I think this is one of the main things is, is how quickly does this technology actually get uptaken into the clinic? Right. And how many kids do we diagnose based on a new technology? Yeah. So let's talk a little bit about the different NGS platforms that are currently available for detecting structural variants, right? I'm thinking specifically about what we call short read versus long read, short reads being, you know, very small pieces, very small reads of DNA that you piece together bioinformatically, and long reads are obviously a longer read. 
So what are the aspects of those different platforms that are really critical enabling the analysis of different kinds of structural variants? One of the points worth making before we talk about structural variants is, is individual point mutations, okay. which explain a, a larger fraction of the cause of many neurodevelopmental disorders or, or, or different disorders that are tested in the clinic. And there, the individual base quality is actually critically important. So if every individual base isn't calibrated the same way, then you can't kind of reliably pick up a given point mutation in a given nucleotide. And in the coding sequence of the genome, that becomes very, very important. It's probably important in the non-coding sequence of the genome, but we haven't come up with a lot of ways to interpret that clinically. When we talk about short read sequencing and structural variation itself, the sort of calibration of individual bases don't matter as much as our ability to pick up how the chromosome has rearranged, right? And so there's kind of a series of signatures one can use to find a structural variant. So let's pretend that, that I have a straight line and it's contiguous sequence. And now I've broken that sequence. Let's call it a deletion because that's sort of the easiest to think about. So I, I have two end pieces and I've removed 100 base pairs in between them. Okay. Let's call it 1,000 base pairs even just to make this even simpler. I now have a read that can cross that deletion. So if I go from base one to base 1001 within my read, then obviously I've lost 1000 bases in between. If my read is short, 150 base pairs, if, if, if we're talking about short read whole genome sequencing, usually we have two ends of about 150 base pairs on a 400 base pair fragment. I could never touch that 1000 base pair space unless something was deleted in between. Right. But that's not the only information I have, right? I can also ask the question of, across that 1,000 base pairs, how many reads did I get in that 1,000 base pairs? And how many reads do I get in the 1,000 base pairs next to it? And if I bin the whole genome up into 1,000 base pairs or even 100 base pair bins, how often do I get less reads in a given bin than I do in the bins next to it? And I can find the deletion that way, right? Uh, I'll have yeah. about half as many reads in that 1,000 base pairs that was deleted. So that's another way we call that read depth. So now I said we have a split read where I read right across the breakpoint, and I have half of my read on one side and half of my read on the other. I have read depth where I'm actually counting the, the number of reads inside. And then I have this idea of a paired end. So if I know I have a fragment of 400 base pairs, let's say, and I've read each end of that fragment for 150 base pairs, well, that gives me 300 base pairs and I have 100 base pairs in the middle. What if both of my ends align and don't cross the breakpoint? but they're separated by a thousand base pairs in between. Right, yeah. Well, I can only have a hundred <laughs> yeah, base pairs right. based on the fragment size, so now I have a paired end signature. And these are the types of signatures that we use. I know you're interested in a lot of different genetic disorders, but there's also something called NIPT, or non-invasive prenatal testing, right? And that's an NGS-based approach where you can take blood from the mom, do NGS on it, and understand whether that fetus has chromosomal abnormalities or aneuploidies, as you, as you call them. So last year, you published a comment in The Lancet, which I found really interesting, where you kind of looked at the literature and whole exome sequencing in the NIPT context. And you kind of suggested, you made the case that it's, it's kind of ready for prime time right now. So I wonder if you could kind of expand on that and talk about the whole exome sequencing in the context of NIPT. There were two studies that had come out on whole exome sequencing. These were not from NIPT, though. They were from uh, germline DNA. So the, the DNA was taken from amniocentesis. Got it. And these studies were done, one in the UK and one at Columbia University um, by a, an outstanding uh, colleague, Ron Wapner, and, and his team. He's been on our podcast, by the way. Great. Well, I'm sure he had plenty of fascinating things to say, um, in particular about NIPT. He's fantastic and, and incredibly knowledgeable about all aspects of this. So the point in The Lancet, though, was that Within the literature, we see, and, and this actually applies whether it's exome sequencing, where we only pull down 
the coding region of the genome, which is what these studies had done, or genome sequencing, where we actually sequence every base in the genome, or in fact from karyotyping, where we look for aneuploidies, is that in the literature there has been a lot of variability in what's reported. In particular, from exome sequencing is sort of moving into a first-tier diagnostic test, where we only look at the, the coding region of the genome. The reports had varied incredibly broadly, from, really? from 5% to, to 75% <laughs> in terms of number of fetuses that were diagnosed. Wow. And what was incredibly important to me was that we were more conservative about telling the, the healthcare system, telling the genomic medicine field and telling patients what we actually should be expecting. And the, the major point of variability was, number one, who were you measuring? Was it consecutive referrals that would actually walk into a hospital, right? I'm not taking this one subset of patients yeah. where my diagnostic yield is going to be much higher, right? Yeah. Who, who comes in to see me? Who gets referred for a test? And that's what both of these studies did. Okay. And that's why I thought they were incredible. Number two is how do I go about interpreting that data? And the studies differed a little bit in that way. And this comes down to sort of the bioinformatic way in which we find variants and interpret them. And so in, in those two ways, I felt that the, the studies had shown very much like karyotyping and microarray comparisons, you know, 10 years ago almost now, done also by Ron Wapner, had shown that basically if, if you apply exome sequencing, you do a little better in terms of your diagnostic yield than microarray. You know, so we had a lot of thoughts about that and, and where whole genome sequencing should come in on top of that. But that was basically that commentary. Okay. In terms of NIPT, which is where you started this question, it's an interesting situation. It is actually fascinating how quickly NIPT has been uptaken. Right? Yeah. So all of a sudden now we can find these aneuploidies. We don't have to do an amniocentesis. We're just seeing this from the, the mother's blood. However, if you want to be a little bit provocative about this, it's been a game changer and yet we've gone backwards. So in the era in which we have actually gotten to the point where we can diagnose kids in those studies in the Lancet, individual nucleotide resolution encoding regions of the genome now with an IPT and looking at aneuploidies, we're going back to karyotyping, right? right? We're going yeah. back to the, you know, we could do this under a microscope yeah, a very exactly, long time ago. Yeah. So I, I think the test itself, I mean, it's rapid uptake in genomic medicine is, is an amazing success story. I also think that its overall value is, is cannot be overstated. As a screening technology. As a screening technology. Right. And, and that's exactly right. But I think we need to be very realistic about what we're finding, what we're not finding, and make sure that the people delivering the tests are, are, are extraordinarily accurate about what they're able to screen for, which is very large aberrations. You mentioned balanced chromosomal abnormalities a little bit earlier. And I just want to talk about one paper really quickly. I don't sure. want to go, go into detail, but it's a nature genetics paper that you published recently. It's called The Genomic Landscape of Balanced Chromosomal Abnormalities. And if any listeners want to take a, you know, take a read, it's PubMed ID 278-41880. And in the article, you looked at the role of, of, of these BCAs, or balanced chromosomal mm -hmm. maladies, in congenital defects. So can you expand a little bit about what these BCAs are and you know what you found in this study and why BCAs seem to have this role in congenital Sure. Defects? No, I'd be happy to. I think it's, it's one of my favorite areas of study, actually, and, and we've been doing it since I was a postdoc. One of the early applications of the massively parallel sequencing technology was the idea that... I want those ends of that fragment, and I don't really care how big the insert is because what I'm looking for is big changes in the chromosomes, right? And so, actually, Jan Corbell and Mike Snyder had, had done some Jan work. Jan Corbell's also been on the podcast. All right, so. there you go. So, you're, you're hitting all the right <laughs> answers. So, they had done some work when I was a grad student uh, published in science that I thought was phenomenal where they um, did a different technology, 454 sequencing, but they effectively were taking large fragments and circularizing them. And if you imagine taking a linear fragment and then turning it into a circle – 
And sequencing where the junction is in the circle, what you've now done is infer the space around the circle. Right. So if each of those ends ends up on a different chromosome, I've inferred a translocation. And so uh, basically what I had done is, is taken that method and used short read sequencing, which was sort of just coming online as I was starting my postdoc, to go after these exact questions. And I did this with my mentor, Jim Casella, while I was a postdoc, um, to ask the question of those translocations and inversions that are very big that we were seeing under the microscope. 50 years ago or 40 years ago right. that all of a sudden we stopped looking for, right? Once microarray came- They haven't gone away. Right? Exactly. They're still there. They're just a, a, they're just quite rare. But what we can learn from them is enormous. And, and while under the microscope, we couldn't see that much. When we started sequencing, now we could tell exactly where those breakpoints were occurring. Turns out they occur in genes quite often. And it turns out that when they occur in genes that are associated with disease, they cause disease. And, and so- in many ways, uh, the work that we have done by sequencing those balanced rearrangements in which two chromosomes come together at one point in the genome, or the same chromosome inverts in, in a way at which when we can see where they break, it's been one of our highest yielding aspects of gene discovery. Really? And so that's the, that's the work that we have done where in that paper that you're talking about, you know, about a quarter of the time, we see that, that these breakpoints disrupt a gene that we now know to interpret as, as causing the disease. Wow. But one of the really interesting aspects of that, and we've been working on this for quite some time since, is it also turns out that a, a number of times when you rearrange the chromosome, you break the three-dimensional structures that regulate genes. All right. And this is how we start to get to questions about positional effects. So when can I not disrupt the gene and still cause disease? And, and this is one of the examples where we have non-coding rearrangements that seem to disrupt the three-dimensional structure, what we call topologically associating domains or TADs. Yeah, Jan talked about that. Oh, perfect. Yeah. <laughs> so, so we had these chromosomes. So what we did is basically imagine a, a study where you look at the entire genome and ask, where in the genome do you more often see possible positional effects than you expect by chance? And we isolated a few of those. And in one of them, we actually get down to a region that was already known as a genomic disorder region. But in fact, we didn't have any translocations that disrupted the gene. We had many translocations that seemed to disrupt the three-dimensional TAD. Oh, wow. And so that's a way that we could use sequencing to actually get at positional effects. And those BCAs are, are just wonderful for those types of studies. Um, they're just extremely rare. And so, wow. you know, it's been a, a significant lift to go find them. That's super cool. So last question I have for you in the, the, the couple minutes we have left. Yeah. You know, what, what excites you about the future of genomics? What do you think we're going to see? Oh, well, everything <laughs> excites me about genomics. Um, I have been really excited about the technology. I think, and you alluded to this before, I explained the, the what we could do with short read sequencing. But in fact, the long read sequencing that's coming online is, is extraordinarily exciting. In many aspects, if we want to actually analyze a genome, then we want to just put that genome together from the yeah. ground up, right? We don't want to necessarily say what we do right now is take a reference. And we compare it to exactly. what we know now. And we yeah. create this sort of big matrix of, of, of all the three billion base pairs in the genome. And then we say, how often do these small reads map onto that, that, that matrix? And, and that's how we put together the genome. What we'd really like to do is just build it from its, you know, build it on its own. And we did this a couple of years ago in one study where there were, there was just this severe form of dystonia Parkinsonism that, that uniquely occurs in the Philippines. And males that inherited a certain segment of the chromosome had an onset in their mid, uh, you know, early uh, 40s of oh, dystonia, wow. then Parkinsonism. And it's a fully lethal, fully penetrant disorder. So it was just terrible. And, and we had done this study. It's called X-linked dystonia Parkinsonism. And there's this paper in Cell last year that um, I think is interesting. And in that what we did is we used long reads and short reads and all kinds of reads, both on the genome and the transcriptome. Mm -hmm. And then we assembled those together under the question that, well, maybe there's a sequence in the Filipino genome 
genome on this one island that doesn't exist in the reference. So aligning yeah. everything to the reference isn't going to find this for me. And it turned out that the causal variant, if you will, had been something that had been described in the literature that's only on one haplotype sitting in these cases in the Philippines that's a, that's a structural variant that jumps into a critical gene on the X chromosome, into an intron. And you wouldn't think anything of it, but we did the transcriptome sequencing and laid it on top of that assembly. And we found that that actually caused aberrant splicing and all these problems. And when we CRISPR out the structural variant, we fixed the signature. And so I think that's what I'm really excited about. If we think about that now translating into, you know, disorders in children that we want to diagnose in the clinic or that we want to work on and understand how to make drugs, can we actually look at their their expression patterns and can we combine that with building their genome from the ground up, you know, what we call de novo assembly, or just looking at their genome and not worrying about everybody else's genome? Right, can we right. understand actually what goes wrong in those children? And I think there's a lot of value to that long-term. However, I don't want to overstate how much we can do in that regard. And that I, I think one of the problems in our field is overstating what we can expect. Right. So it's still the case that most disease is caused by the coding region of the genome. That's where uh, natural selection uh, you know, operates strongest. And putting together the, other, the rest of the non-coding region of the genome will not necessarily find that many additional causal variants that sort of we can say are going to affect a child and lead to disease or what we call highly penetrant variants, right. like the X-linked dystonia Parkinsonism. What is more interesting maybe is trying to understand disease and the genetic architecture of disease from common variation and then sort of combining the common variation with the rare variation in a way that we can actually interpret entire cohorts. And, and, and that's, I think, what's happening in the future. And it's been fascinating. <laughs> Mike, I want to thank you. This has been a fascinating discussion. I uh, really appreciate your insight in, into how genomics is going to be applied in the future and the, you know, the value of short read, long read, and yep. combine this data. Thanks for joining us on the Illumina Genomics Podcast. Thank you very much for having me. Hey, if you like today's show, why not subscribe to the podcast? You can find our show wherever podcasts are found. You can even ask Alexa to play the Illumina podcast. Join me next time when I'll be talking with Dr. Gonzalo Girabet. He's professor of organismic and evolutionary biology at Harvard, and he's also curator in charge of invertebrate zoology at the Museum of Comparative Zoology. We'll be discussing the use of genomics and transcriptomics to better understand invertebrate evolution, right here on the Illumina Genomics Podcast. 